1: Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast. My name is Shraddha Chattuji and I'm currently a doctoral candidate in Gender Feminist and Women's Studies at York University in Toronto. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Gediminas Lesutis about their latest book titled The Politics of Precarity, Spaces of Extractivism, Violence and Suffering, published in 2021 by Routledge. Dr. Lesutis is a Marie Curie Fellow in the Department of Human Geography, Planning and International Development at the University of Amsterdam. Their work has been published in Antipode, Society and Space, the Annals of the American Association of Geographers, the Transactions of the Institute of British Geographers, GeoForum, and elsewhere. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Lesutis.
0: Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. Thank you.
1: Same here. So I'd like to begin by asking you my first question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to the framing of this book? So essentially, what made you realize this book needs to be written and how does that journey frame the book itself?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, to be completely honest, uh, the questions that I explore in the book, initially, they came about not so much as a defined scholarly project, but as my curiosity and attempt to understand uh, what hides beneath narratives of progress, development, that many of us in both so-called global north and global south are socially conditioned to trust and believe in. And these kind of narratives create this illusion of positivity uh, that lies at the core of capitalist ideological representations of what constitutes a good life or a good world, and you know these narratives promise prosperity to all of us. However, of course, simultaneously, many of us know that, uh, particularly As scholars in critical branches of academia, we know that this is only a very small part of the story about the world, not even the real story. Just like this kind of ideological phantasmagoria that is expressed through the spectacle of positivity, that kind of creates uh, this distraction and pacification. Maybe if we can use this word of of masses of of people. Um, So I. This is what kind of intrigued me. I, I wanted to explore these kind of questions uh, in one sp- through one specific story of extractivism, of coal mining and dispossession in Mozambique. Uh, it was a story that for different reasons fas- fascinated me and drew me in. I don't know if, how personal uh, you would like me to go into this, but... Um, More broadly speaking, I wanted to understand what happens on the ground in a specific place, in a historically marginalized place and kind of global context, uh, when so-called global development processes take place and unfold. Uh, So I wanted to understand this relationship between the contemporary world order that is shaped by a relentless intensification of extractive, extractive capital accumulation on the one hand, And on the other hand, these vulnerable groups of people uh, that contest the destruction of their lives by different modes of extractivism. So how can we kind of understand this relationship between the extractive world, global capitalism, and vulnerable groups of people who are directly dispossessed, violated, made unnecessary by this world order? Um, So to answer this question, I spent uh, almost a year in Mozambique, Uh, out of this year I spent four months in one specific resettlement village that was created to house uh, villages uh, dispossessed uh, by coal mining, international coal mining investments. Um, And I I lived with one resettled family uh, and carried Somewhat ethnographic research. I mean, I can't say ethnographic fully because I'm not an anthropologist and I try to respect the methods that anthropologists use that I attempted to do ethnography. Trying to understand the lives uh, and kind of lived experiences of people who are subjected to dispossession and resettlement uh, as well as focusing on the coping strategies that they have had to employ uh, in order to deal with what comes after dispossession resettlement and having to cope with uh this massive changes in one's uh, spaces of life um i kind of already forgot the question that you started like what was the intellectual journey okay yes i i do remember now uh yeah um so to me the people's stories or rather my account of them of what i heard and felt in the resettlement resettlement site permitted all the choices that I made in uh, in writing this book. I wanted to write this book, to first and foremost, to document the story of this village that was resettled into a different location, um, and what the story of this village means in terms of understanding the contemporary world at large. Uh, So therefore, in this sense, the book is grounded in the experiences of a very specific time and space. Um, but I do not approach this as analytically useful and productive only in relation to Mozambique, Africa extractivism. Instead, I, in the book, I attempt to analyze accounts of dispossession in everyday life, uh, showing how what might be conceived as so-called marginal African experience in fact, can help us understand the core questions of global politics and capital. Uh, So in this way, I engage with recent theoretical work on precarity and ongoing debates and critical theory about resistance, the politics of development, possibilities of a livable life under contemporary global capitalism. Um, So this is what kind of motivated me to sum up my long-winded answer. I was interested in this... Very specific case study of dispossession in Mozambique, but I wanted to approach it from this kind of broader theoretical perspective. What does this case study tell us about the world that we live in at the moment, or have lived uh, for a long time? Do we just see the kind of the very uh, crude forms of in- intensification of this extractivism?
1: And I think that's a that's a great way to put it because you know it really does hit at what the book is about and i think one of the strengths of the book is that you are able to go between the very you know i i don't like this binary but but you're able to traverse this kind of space between the local and the global in a in a very interesting but but also in a very kind of um in in a nuanced and a very careful way so um i think in my reading that that is what i found most also most useful about the book that in learning about Mozambique, we were not really learning about Mozambique. You know, we were learning about life in a in in a in an important kind of way. And I have like I have follow up questions, but I'll 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 time them differently. So, um, you
0: know, I say that um, it makes me really happy to hear you say this because that's what I really wanted to do. Uh, I don't position myself as an Africanist or an expert on Mozambique because I don't think I'm not. I don't think I am. Uh, But I wanted to kind of explore this case, like more globally. And uh, although I also kind of, I see this problematic binary between local and global. We can discuss that later, perhaps. But thank you for saying this. It makes me happy to hear
1: this. (laughs) (laughs) I think it does. It does. It does come across in the book. So, uh, you know, you certainly did what you set out to do, you know, and thank you. (laughs) I guess I guess that's a good thing. Um, So what would you say are the central arguments of the book and how are the chapters organized?
0: That's like, (laughs) it's funny how it's still a billion dollar question to me, if I can say so, having written this book now like two years ago. I think in kind of in in a few brief sentences, the book argues that precarity is not something ontological in human life, but it's a politically constituted vulnerability of social life that is intensified by the violence of capitalist development into a condition of suffering and struggle that contains possibilities, but never actualities of transformative politics. So let me unpack this, like this kind of sentence. So um, so in the book, I theorize how precarity as a condition, like politically induced condition of social life, how it unfolds as a spatially constituted um, kind of circumstance of everyday life, life that is given over to violence of capital. And I specifically go beyond labor relations or biopolitical governance of life and liberal democracies that are typically explored in the literature on precarity. And I show how in this these sites that traditionally are not engaged with in the literature on kind of global economy and precarity and changing relations of everyday life. uh, How in these sites, people are still subjected to intense forms of structural, symbolic, and direct violence associated with capitalist development. Um, And the book is kind of structured in that way. First, I provide a theoretical kind of grounding, historical grounding, and then each consecutive chapter focuses on structural, symbolic, and direct forms of violence. And what I want to show through this kind of framing of the question is how these forms of violence uh, simultaneously constitute uh, disp- dispossessed people's suffering, and at the same time, their ceaseless desire, however implausible, to be included in abstract space of extractivism. That on the simultaneously, this extractivist space is a space of violence and a very like different forms of violence that it expresses that people feel and narrate and understand. But at the same time, they, they see the space as the only pathway to a better life to development. Uh, so, and I make this argument that despite multiple forms of violence that extractivism engenders, it is at the same time sustained and reproduced even in the margins by highly precarious and vulnerable groups who historically have been excluded and are excluded from the imaginaries of a good life promised by capitalism. So I wrestle with this dilemma, how and why people who are subjected to relentless violence of extractive capital development, how they still see this as the only way of Good life that they could have if they were included into this space.
1: And yes, I think I think that's what's. Uh, I mean, I I find some particular aspects of your argument very very interesting, and I have questions about them in a few minutes, particularly around space and um you know also what you said in your first answer around um the phantasmagoria you know so so we'll we'll come back to that but uh before we we get into it i think one of the key arguments in your book is that extractivism global capitalism is no longer a determinant of labor relations alone and that it seeps into the social intimate and community relations of the like of the people that you're observing i would say ethnographically um so in in other words it seems to structure life itself right and and that's what you're alluding to in your answer when you say that um there is still that desire to be included in that extractive space of violence right and that desire comes from more than just labor alone it's a desire for a kind of life a kind of extractive like life and one's participation in it so you know could you say something more about this and i i you know, what are the specificities of extractivism in Mozambique as well? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I absolutely make this argument how, yeah, we have to uh, kind of understand extractive global capitalism through much broader relations and labor relations. And I do this in like kind of this very specific focus on differentiating between precarity, precariousness and precarious life. I think in the literature, like these... At least in the literature that doesn't engage with the precarity directly, this word of precarity, precariousness, they are, these words are used very interchangeably without actually really, really kind of providing exact conceptual uh, histories and uh, frameworks that they represent. And uh, so I kind of engage with this, showing how uh, uh, precarity as something that that is that is a politically constituted condition of increased vulnerability. Although it has become, I mean, let me say it this way, precarity has become kind of a contemporary signifier of single and multiple crises. And although theorized since the 1980s, uh, scholarly work on precarity particularly proliferated after the 2008 crisis, however, most of this work continue to focus of, on experiences of exploitative labor regimes in the global north and to a less extent on violence of biopolitical regimes in liberal democracies. I show how, in, my, in the politics of precarity, I show how this concept uh, demonstrates a much more analytically as well as politically uh, expansive use of the term of precarity, that can be read through diverse political projects implied by different, sometimes conflicting, epistemological positions on precarity. So I theorize precarity at an intersection of historical geographical materialism on the one hand, and a post-structuralist tradition and its emphasis on power, subjectivization, and resistance on the other. And I bring the work of Judith Butler, Henry Lefebvre, and Jacques Rancière, who are f- frequently, or I think not, really study together, but I read the writings on precarious life, abstract space, and politics of the census uh, to demonstrate how such theoretical exper- experimentations articulate questions of politics, resistance, and livability uh, in materially grounded and politically charged ways. And this is significant for several reasons. First, I argue that precarity is a condition of life engendered by global capitalism. I show that precarious lives are sustained through structural, symbolic, and direct violence that extend outside and beyond the violence of labor regimes, exploitation, or by politics of a modern neoliberal state. Um, so people subjected to precarity, I argue, simultaneously experience struggle and hope, dreaming and suffering because of and for a better life promised by capital, even in zones of political, economic, and social abandonment. And I argue in the book that language of precarity is more analytically productive in engaging with these experiences of violence than various different conceptual frameworks that focus on surplus, wasted, bypassed, or expulsed populations. And I I argue this because I think the language of precarity draws this attention to mechanisms and logics of dispossession. Uh, But it goes beyond that because it shows how uh beyond the structural relation there are kind of these affective desires that are contradictory uh in kind of sustaining this desire for inclusion into extractive spaces and the kind of development processes uh and and as i kind of repeated it they make this argument that extractive capital accumulation is only uh is seen as the only viable pathway to development, uh, and to me, like the second reason why I use precarity is that it, for me, the concept harbors kind of this implicit political project. So others like um, uh, Franco Barchesi, he already pointed out that precarity has emancipatory potential in demonstrating the fundamental insecurity of all labor relations within capitalism. In other words, that Precariousness of labor is not something that started happening, you know, in the 70s and 80s with the dissolution of welfare state, that it has always been there. So, in this sense, holding on to the idea that you know, there's a secure, dignified employment as a basis of political mobilization uh, is kind of misleading because it kind of says that sustainability and actual just and fair contribution for one's bodily capacity to labor can ever be fair in capitalism. I mean, the argument should be that it cannot, that it's always a fundamentally exploitative relationship, and we kind of need to deconstruct this idea of what it means to quote-unquote freely sell one's labor under capitalism. So I argue that this emancipatory potential of precarity as a conceptual framework can be approached even more broadly in regards to modes of living everyday life and coping um, because it shows that it's not just labor relations. It's not just neoliberal uh, states in the West that subject certain racialized populations of precarity that under capitalism kind of precarity characterizes life in general. And of course, it's like mediated by different intersectional power relations, race, class, ethnicity, sexuality, gender. But the kind of the essence of the kind of the violence of the system is always there. But sometimes we don't see it because we are blinded by certain forms of privilege that we might have. Uh, So we don't see how this kind of fundamental relationship is one of violence and precarization. Uh,
1: And I think it's also like it's interesting that you make this argument because for me, what is really, really valuable is that you're showing that there is an investment to be included into that kind of system right so again like one of the great things about your book that i found was that um you were showing us that yes you know these are like uh, these are like almost these global conditions of capitalism that we live in and there is so much research that's happened already on capitalism on neoliberalism on the like even on the fact that there is this kind of, um, there is the exploitation of workers, right? Like, it is one of those baseline things that I think now we all come to agree on, at least those of us in the social sciences, you know, for the, for the most part, right? But But I think what is really valuable and important about your work is that you also add another dimension to that, which is that It's not simply that privilege allows us to not see this narrative of exploitation. It's also that the desire to be included makes us forget this narrative of exploitation. So, you know, it, it, and I think that that in particular is what is so exciting about what you show us. And because to me, it adds another layer for why transformation becomes very difficult. And you point to that in the book as well that if, you know, like our own commitment and our own investment in not seeing, um, you know, like extractivism or like our own precarity or our own exploitation um, kind of makes that transformation even, defi- even more difficult because we ourselves like don't want to resist this system that is like taking its toll on us. Um...
0: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that relationship is in in the context of uh, this resettlement village where I worked, I mean, it's so prominent, it's so vivid, so visceral. Because the way, for example, I started my research there was that most people were really, really emphasizing their suffering and what happened to them. And they even would say things like, please tell, tell the world about what has happened here. Tell of, of, you know, how we were dispossessed without being properly consulted in the process, how we didn't have any other option, how we were, you know, intimidated with the police violence, how some of us were arrested. And they were really emphasizing that. But at the same time, the kind of the solution that they saw to this problem was that they would be given long term employment in the mines, that they would be, yeah, essentially that. So... As long as they were in the in their life worlds, as long as they saw some read some benefits from that system, they they didn't see a kind of fundamental structural problem with it. The problem was that they were kind of pushed out out of it, you know. Uh, and I mean, this of course it happens in a very precarious, historically marginalized context where people were subjected to different forms of exploitation by colonial. Portuguese state well P- portuguese empire controlled state and then uh post colonial processes of large scale villageization programs uh, so kind of this violence kind of maps and set demands on preceding forms of violence and uh, yeah, and for me, that's what kind of intrigued me, that how can these kind of things ex- coexist simultaneously at the same time? And of course, it's different to other contexts. Like, for example, when we think about uh, Zapatista's movement in Mexico, right, where it actually did lead to somewhat productive forms of mobilization, contestation, and politicization of extractivism. Uh, I don't have enough expertise on that to to kind of... <laughs> I don't, yeah, to compare and contrast what happened then, what that happened it didn't it didn't happen in the case of Mozambique. Um, yeah, but that question, and I, I still see it like the same dynamic now in my current work. I'm working in different empirical contexts in Kenya, uh, but still somewhat related, no, actually directly related to questions of dispossession. And I see the same, like kind of the same paradox being articulated again. Where the violence of the post-colonial state, the violence of investors, the violence of transnational capital class is articulated and it's very prominent, but at the same time, people do not want to go beyond that. That they want to be to to make that process more inclusive, so they can benefit as well. Which, of course, then I ask myself to what extent we as left-wing academics to what extent is our thinking useful because it is a form of privilege to deconstruct and see beyond and what kind of ideas and normative politics it represents but when you are faced with immediate questions of one's and one's family's social reproduction you have to make choice that is the most pragmatic and uh And when you're kind of implicated in the system that you cannot go beyond, what else are you going to do? I mean, we do the same thing, right? Just in a different context, I guess. We, (laughs) I mean, as precarious academics, young academics, early career scholars, we know that some things very much stand against what we believe in. You know, like working long hours, compromising, uh, not. On yeah, once li- work-life balance, if there's such thing, like knowing how, like we are subjecting ourselves to you know to this kind of exploitative system, trying to publish in high-ranking journals. You know, it's kind of the very similar process that happens in a different context. Of course, now I'm kind of getting sidetracked, I'd, but kind of the par- parallels are there. I think. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
1: I think so. And, you know, if you hadn't said it, that was going to be my immediate follow up that, you know, what is, what is really the role uh, that that we can play in making this argument, especially given that we also participate in a similar system in our careers, right? But I think this is a great leading off point to the question that I had for you about your methodology, because I think you also, uh, like, I found that to be one of the more more interesting kind of moments in your book where you talk about your own experience in Mozambique so um, you know can you talk a bit about what kinds of challenges you faced did you you know do your research participants for example know that this is the theorization of precarity precariousness that you drew you know from the interviews that you did with them and then if they know or were they to find out, do you think that they would agree with your analysis, especially given that a, like a big component of your work is that they want to participate in this extractive economy? Um, and I think I want to add one more question because you mentioned it earlier in the interview, which is that you stayed with one family and that's what, you know, um, that's what kind of drew you into the community that you were studying. So what was that experience like to kind of ground yourself in that one family? Um, and, you know, anything you want to say here would be great.
0: Yeah. Okay. Please remind me and kind of keep me on track if I get sidetracked, because I will. There are kind of three parts to this question. I mean, first of all, method- yeah, methodologically, I the book is based on kind of my engagement with a uh, critical readings of narratives about everyday life following dispossession uh, that I complemented with participant observations and, sec- and secondary data. So, and I approached narrative in this like very specific way from sociological theory point of view that, which stands for that stories that uh, are articulated in, by research participants. Are not empirical representations of the world out there, that they do not depict quote unquote real life. Instead, they are constructive of what we understand as social reality. So, in other words, through narratives and narrativity and stories we tell about ourselves and about the world, we come to know and understand and make sense of the social world. Uh, so it is through narrativity that we constitute us and us, our social identities. So, and that's what I tried to kind of do and show in the book and that this kind of research encounter, how my presence of who I am and more importantly, how I am perceived by people how it might influence what people are telling me. So let me give specific examples of this. I mean, it's inevitable that in in this post-colonial context, in a country that used to be colonized by Portuguese, uh, whiteness and blackness is understood in this kind of global colonial sense. And when you are white in that particular context, inevitably you have these kind of, histories behind you through which people might kind of perceive your presence so when i was in the in the in in the village i mean first of all people immediately wanted to know if i was portuguese or if i was brazilian because brazilians were the mining investors in the area so they i found that the point that the fact that i wasn't portuguese or brazilian i was welcomed much more, in the kind of more friendly terms, because my whiteness was slightly strange and out of the place. Most people didn't even know where Lithuania was and is. I mean, that's where I'm originally from. So they couldn't really reference like, where does this, like, where does this white man come from? And of course, at the time I was studying in England. So I would say, well, I'm studying in England, but I'm not British, because that was also an important thing for me to emphasize. So, so that was the first thing to kind of first thing that I wanted to somehow navigate in this fieldwork encounter. Uh, and the, the second thing was the fact that I spoke good enough Portuguese and that we could engage in, of course, the language that is a language of a former colonizer, but spoken by a lot of people as a, well in urban areas as a mother tongue and rural areas as a language learned at school. Uh, That was also really welcomed by the people as my attempt to try to engage with the local social context. Uh, But at the same time, because it's very obvious that I am outside of the place, my presence was perceived in all sorts of ways, that I was a development worker, that I was a journalist, that I was a missionary, that I was a priest. Uh, So... I reflected on that positionality in these moments when the narratives were particularly focused, like were particularly emotional and focusing on, on, on pain, suffering and justice, just to keep this kind of tension, how, what I am and what I'm doing there might influence this narrative. Because if people think that I'm a missionary or if I'm a priest or if I'm a development worker, historically in Mozambique these people were providing food handouts, some form of development assistance. So there's a understandable interest to narrate oneself in a specific way to perform this vulnerability, to kind of appropriate that context in a way that is useful to you. I mean, but this vulnerability is, of course, is not invented. It exists there. People do not invent stories out of nowhere. Like there's material background to this, right? But at the same time, it can also be, I mean, the dynamic can be reversed. Uh, In the book, I discuss how this group of younger men who I engage with and follow them in their everyday activities as they were trespassing the mine and doing some work there for consecutive, I know, seven, no, it was a couple of weeks, they were actually telling me that they were the real landowners and they could not be dispossessed and made unnecessary by the mining company, that there was nothing they could do to them. But after a couple of weeks, they actually, the narrative changed because there were like some developments in the mining concession and they appropriated, like the, the land where people were working was going to be excavated very soon. So then the material context changed and the narrative of this kind of masculinity that cannot be injured and affected by this kind of broader political context changed to one of kind of this vulnerability that these men really didn't want to narrate to me. And then I was reflecting, why did it happen? And one of my interpretations was that it happened because we were of similar age, young men, wanting to live our lives. And why would these men want to kind of admit their vulnerability to me. They wanted me to feel dependent and vulnerable. They even said, like, we are the landowners here and we could do anything we wanted to you." So, you know, these kind of... So I think if without telling these stories about my own presence and how it affects this kind of exchange of uh, experiences, I think it's kind of then becomes impossible to illustrate this nuance that happens in, in kind of this so-called research encounter. And that's why I had no choice, but to talk about myself, Um uh, oh, and s- something that I tried hard and I don't know if I succeeded, but I also didn't want to kind of overindulge on, on who I am and like my privileges because. I cannot help but you know admit that that in a kind of a global economy of racialization of life and what you know who can have a livable life and who cannot I by I am lucky to be where I'm from and to to be you know to have the the skin that is you know that that I have it's just I cannot deny that and I try to stay humble with it, but at the same time, knowing the the power that it has that, you know, and then of course the responsibility that I I have with it. So I try to kind of work with these tensions in the book. Uh, yeah. To, to, a, to a greater, or less extent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, so just to, because you said, I should remind you. So one of the questions was around, um, you know, if your research participants knew that this is the narrative that you had produced of them, how would they take it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, yeah. Like, do you want to say something about it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That?
0: So yeah. I think they would agree with it. Maybe they wouldn't necessarily, I don't know what they would make sense of, uh, language of precarity but they themselves use the word vulnerability a lot. Uh, and uh, I did go back to their settlement site a year after I finished uh, my my initial fieldwork to present some of the reflections that I had uh, on kind of their vulnerability. Uh, and they actually they told me that I wasn't emphasizing it enough. And 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 it's interesting that so this is a story that they wanted me to tell. And uh, so in the first month of fieldwork, when I started it, I could only hear those stories. And I was like, really interesting. But what do people do to kind of cope with this situation? And people would play down that question. They wouldn't want to talk about it. And only after some time, I realized that... Because people say like, well, we are not doing much. What can you do in this situation? Just kind of this and that. And i would be like, but what do you mean by this and that? What do you ex- exactly do? And then I found out that young men, for example, they go back to the mining concession where they used to live and they are still working the land there because it's not being currently uh, mined by the company. And then I would ask some of the interlocutors, like some of the friends that I had in the resettlement side, I was like, why are you not talking about it? Because it's important that people find these ways to cope with the situation. And they would say, but this is just survival because it's, like, it's not like something that we, you know, very significant, this is something that we just we have to do if we want to uh, have food so so based on that, I kind of chose to emphasize that well what they call vulnerability and what i called what I call precarity a bit more because it would have been in a lot of ways, this book writing this book was a painful process because in a way, it's not something that you enjoy, that gives you pleasure, you know, to talk about this injustice that has happened and is happening to people. I would have liked to have written more about, you know, kind of hopeful politics of resistance and change and uh, just to have hope myself that the world can be made different. But unfortunately, I just didn't see and felt and enough of those dynamics in the resettlement side. But I, I'd still try to show that those moments of kind of what Ranciere calls the census or contestation, they still exist and people can still, uh, strive to kind of overcome violence that is, that they are exposed to. And I, I reflect on those moments in the book, but then because I read precarity spatially, how is kind of wider material political context of coal extraction of Mozambique's political economy? How it overshadows or even kind of uh, yeah, it overshadows these everyday kind of coping practices to for a more livable life. Um so so again, this kind of the story was very much the the quest of the people that I was working with that they wanted me to emphasize that a bit more and uh, yeah and there was i think a third part of the question
1: the third part was what was it like to be um, be traversing the community while being situated in one family Mm -hmm.
0: that that was that was like something quite i think i was incredibly incredibly lucky to have met my fieldwork assistant. And it was just an incredible blessing of life that uh because of course in these spaces, as in any community in the world, you can't just show up and start asking questions. You need to meet the gatekeepers first and kind of introduce yourself to. I worked with the local civil society group. Uh that's where I kind of started my research. And it was uh uh a driver in that in that civil society group who was not doing any kind of uh, more so-called serious kind of uh, activist work. He was just like driving people around. He was the one who told me about this person in the resettlement site. And I called him on the phone and I remember when I, we chatted, I immediately had this feeling. I was like, okay, I have a good feeling that this person, he kind of, uh, he understands what this is about. And then we met and it was uh It was just uh, incredible how well we understood each other and how open and accepting he was of of me in the in the site and that I felt comfortable living with his family and you know sharing all our meals together and uh, kind of staying open with it because at the same time i also try i didn't want to impose because I knew that my presence brings certain challenges to this person because I was this unusual person being hosted by this family and what it meant in the, in the, in in the, in the, in the resettlement village, there were all sorts of rumors why I was there. Uh, And there were like certain things that we didn't want to do, or he didn't want to do because he was concerned about my safety, for instance. Uh, Like one thing that we, I wanted to do was... Because in the book, I discuss how 30% of the of the village, they had abandoned the village and they left to live in more remote areas of the province that are only reachable by a motorbike. You need to drive for two, three hours to get there. Once I realized that, the, that it was happening, I wanted to explore that. And my fieldwork assistants refused as that being too dangerous to do. But eventually when we we got to know each other well enough, then he changed his mind. And then he understood that he can also trust me, that I can do certain things without putting myself and him in danger, in danger. So it was kind of this uh, negotiation process, but also kind of based on, a, on the level of friendship that we formed, because I mean, we essentially spent four months together and, and then, you know, it made me realize, and that's why I'm I'm so humble that, and also have this slightly uneasy easy relationship that, I mean, we can discuss about this, how this encounter and this one person can really make or break your, your research and what, how much you gain out of this encounter as a scholar, as a young academic, and how much they gain from that encounter. Of course, I paid him like the rate that we agreed for the work that he was doing for me, but... <laughs> It's not something that I enjoy saying, but it's something that I need to say that this encounter is still extractivist in a different way because I can try to be as fair and as, as just as I can be, but it doesn't change the fact that I take something out of his his life, his life experience, his contacts, because his contacts and his well-respected position in the in the village allowed me to access different places and different people And as much as I try to be fair in that process, I think at the end of the day, the process was still in a sense extractive and we do keep in touch. And I've seen him a few more times in Maputo and uh, I always, I mean, I do what I can, what's appropriate uh, for our level of friendship uh, but and we spoke about it openly, and he, I mean, we, he said like, "Well, look, you wrote a book about it that I cannot read because it's in it's in English," and he said like, "There's nothing that you know is going to change in our li- in our lives." But then I was like, "Well, I never said there was going to be a change because there's only so much that I can do, and all I can do is I I can express my thoughts and write about it and." Uh, I mean, of course we can also do activist work as academics, but yeah, these are profoundly unsettling questions that we have to deal with and doing this kind of research. And the more I think about it, the more uncomfortable I become, even in my own current work, I think there's a difference between what you do when you are a PhD student in your mid twenties and what you do as a slightly more seasoned scholar in your mid-30s, when you realize that (laughs) what kind of this encounter that you have is mediated by so many power relations. and uh...
1: No, I think thank you for sharing that because these are important questions that we must address. And, um, you know, certainly, like, I appreciate that you're being so forthcoming about them. And I think there is an honesty with which you discuss them even in the book, which is why it was such an important portion or it was an important aspect of your book for me. And, you know, particularly even for myself, I've always worked on social justice movements. And so these questions become even more important, which is that what do I do when I get, you know, um, when I get like an academic kind of, I don't know, like, academic advancement from working on social justice movements and then also having a critical lens about them right so what are the kinds of processes that go behind that and and there i think these questions of what does the research do does it reflect back on social justice work does it you know help shape it in some way does it advance it if not then what is the purpose you know so all of these things become really important and and I'm glad that you're kind of talking about them in, in I, I think in a very robust and a very forthcoming kind of way. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how you'll negotiate with this. I'm not sure how I will ne- negotiate with it either, to be fair, but it's important, I think, to have that conversation.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think ultimately it's something that we cannot negotiate and resolve and it's like it's I think this idea that we can kind of somehow this tension make make this tension make sense is just like illusion because we live in this kind of fundamentally violent, unjust, and unfair world, and even the idea of the world is a very privileged concept to have that there's a world to have and that the world can be changed and be made better because when we think about different kinds of marginalized populations from, you know, human beings, rendered slaves to indigenous populations, to transgender people, to them, having the idea of the world that will allow a space to live in as an, it, it, it's something unmanageable like the world is fundamentally anti, anti-black and anti-queer still in a lot of ways. So, and this, and this tension, this impossibility of resolving these kind of issues is very much is always there. And I think we cannot kind of disavow that. And I think thinking that we can actually solve them is kind of an illusion. And, but yeah, and then the question is like, what do we do with it? Like, what do you do with that tension? Do you become an activist? Do you become an artist? Do you become an academic or do you completely, I don't know, disengage and do something completely different that you don't wanna think about it um i mean i think about that sometimes that maybe i would be happier working i don't know in a bar and not having to think about these questions you know just to be completely honest uh so it's, it's something to reflect
1: <laughs> i think that's fair you know and i think again to bring this discussion back to your book also like why your book becomes so relevant here is that just like these conversations, I think what you seem to be suggesting is that there is no escape from extraction and extractive relations, right? And, and I think it's what you are also suggesting with respect to, you know, how we negotiate with fieldwork or the power dynamics of that fieldwork, that there is no escape from the extractive relation that we are a part of when we do this kind of work. So what does that then mean? And I think your book asks a similar question, which is that if there is no escape from that extractive relation, what does, what does that really mean for us? Um, which, again, is a great segue for our next question, which is that I think, like, one of the things that I found fascinating about your book is that your theoretical framework gives precarity a kind of spatial dimension. And at the beginning of our conversation, again, like, you referred to it as like a phantasmagoria which also has a spatial dimension at least in how I imagine it like it is it 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 is a kind of landscape um so why is this necessary for your project to think about space in this way and what does foregrounding space or landscape or terrains or as you say geographies of suffering bring to your framework of precarity so um and and I guess what I'm trying to ask here is, how do you then re-theorize precarity and why is it necessary to do so, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, when we look at the literature on precarity, most of it is kind of to do with time and historicity of changing labor relations. And so there's like this question of temporality and labor. Uh. I mean, if we look at kind of orthodox literature on precarity, I mean, it kind of the language emerges in the 70s, 80s in Europe with the changing welfare state and labor regimes. Uh, Or when we look at Judith Butler's writing, precarity is a concept used in the context of the global war on terror and kind of biopolitics of racialization of Muslim populations and other racialized groups. I mean, even... Butler's work, uh, Frames of War, When is Life Grievable? has kind of this temporal question to it. And for me, the question is, when and where is life grievable? So kind of extending, uh, thinking how precarization expresses across space and in kind of geographies of everyday life. And I do this through, I mean, I kind of came to think about this in the context of... Uh, anthropological work on, uh, by James Ferguson and others on neoliberal enclaves in, in, in Africa, that like, kind of these very intensified spaces of extraction created by international investors that hop on from one territory to another to create these enclaves of extraction and ship resources to global commodity markets. And I was kind of thinking, what happens to kind of constitutive outside of this space So precisely at these areas of dispossession and resettlement where those who are deemed surplus live or try to make their lives livable in some sense. Um, So kind of by bringing this like spatial uh, reading of precarity, I try to map this linkage between intensification of uh, extractivism that engenders precarity of life and then not map precarity that happens within this space, for example, with labor relations, but what happens in vulnerable groups that are kind of in the constitutive outsides of this space? Um, And uh, how there are kind of these harm constitutive effects that are inscribed in space through dispossession, through social effacement of marginal groups, uh, and, like, what happens in there. So this kind of context... Uh, is very important and to me like another reason why I was reading this kind of focusing on material processes of material social processes of space making is that also to ground readings of politicization and resistance uh, meaning that I at least in my reading of uh, kind of more post-structuralist work on vulnerability and contestation and precarization that there is understandably a lot of focus on kind of these kind of interstitial spaces of subjective, subjectivization where different kind of forms of resistance might emerge, however fleetingly, I think when we read those acts within the landscape and the effects that it might have or might not have on the landscape, or like this kind of space that we live in, that's when we see that like there's a limit to what this fleeting forms of uh, re- resistance can achieve or cannot achieve. Because uh, at the end of the day, I mean, to give like a kind of example of, uh, again, of my book where I discuss, you know, the kind of this example of young men who were going back to the land and working it in spite of the enclosure of that land. In spite of these acts, at the end of the day, they cannot change the materiality of that space, that it's still a mining enclosure, that the investor is still present there, that the investor is still supported by the Mozambican government and police, and that they cannot override that, that this kind of space of contestation is very limited. And when it becomes too much or unaccepted for the state and the investor, they will intervene in direct corporeal ways of violence to kind of undo it. So for me, this kind of, like this spatial reading and the spatiality of everyday life and what can happen and cannot happen kind of provides this kind of theoretical sense, methodological sense of caution that we cannot romanticize. Uh, I mean, that was the argument that I was making at the time when I was writing the book. I do not necessarily agree with this argument 100% now, two years later, having engaged with different kinds of literatures. Uh, which uh, yeah so yeah that that was uh,
1: (laughs) no now that you've said that you have to talk about how you know what shifted there for you like we have to have that
0: conversation yeah well i think in that sense i think this this kind of i still in the book i still now i see that i still a parts of my arguments still rely on this kind of binary thinking like what is resistance what is not resistance what is uh, what is politically productive what is not politically productive i kind of still shift between those things and i think had at the time had i read i know critical black studies so uh, kind of more engaging like with the uh, yeah like more, maybe even more afro pessimism literature or even queer queer theory had i done it more at the time i think that thinking would have allowed me to go beyond these binaries and kind of work more this this tension and how do we make sense of this tension and what it might mean but then again and now as soon as i say it i'm like but how would then my research participants would have not agreed with that they did want me to emphasize their vulnerability you know so then there's like this question that I immediately posed to myself. To what extent can I allow myself to explore these kind of different theoretical way of seeing the world without compromising the story that people want me to tell to the world? And I did initially set out to re- write this book as the story of these people that I was privileged to engage with. So how again, like how do we mediate this tension? Like how I mediate this tension? I don't know. Um, and and yeah, to I think me-
1: this is like no. Sorry, go on. Go on.
0: No, to me this is like kind of a question that I I keep thinking about in, in like in all like in my second current projects. How to kind of it's kind of becomes like this impossibility to. To represent the world in a sense in a sense that is fair to people that I do research with, but also engages with all the kind of critical thinking that I do in my own kind of intellectual terms. That again, it's like to what extent, like as I was talking before about this kind of narrativity, how stories we tell are not representations of reality, but our construction of reality. I mean, again, I don't want to become this re- relativist that everything I say can be, you know, is mediated by my position. Like, be- it's not, because at the same time, I mean, identity is, a, you know, a way of thinking about the constitutive exclusions of violence of the world. It's not something that is, you know, is, we are. It's something that, you know, happens to us. And, like, so, yeah, I'm kind of... Now I'm getting slightly concerned that I'm presenting more dilemmas and then, <laughs> then answers to, to what, what you're asking me.
1: <laughs> no, I think that's great. And I was going to say that this is why you're an anthropologist. I don't think you should hesitate anymore. You know, like you're revealing yourself as one in this podcast and we have a record of it also. Um but i suppose this also makes me like i'll ask my next question and you know i'll add i'll add a question based on what you're saying so in the book you argued that coping within an ex- extractive capitalism framework produces the non politics of abandonment right and so i i i would like to hear from you like what does this mean and you also suggest that there is a shiver of resistance within the precarious existence and Displacement of the people in Katem is that I'm I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right and so uh, you know uh, I wanted to know your negotiation with like this argument and then also now I want to ask has this argument changed for you since the time that you've written the book
0: Yeah, so I mean I already touched upon this so I kind of I make this argument in a very kind of yeah in the final part of the book in the like in the, in the final chapter and. I mean the argument is kind of straightforward that I, I, I argue that transformative politics of precarity have been overemphasized. And with my focus on non-politics, I want to highlight the potential danger of fetishizing coping or surviving and overestimating the potential of resistance by those who are violently prevented from protesting or you know dispossessed by by different extractivist processes. So in a way, I you know as we already discussed, I I underline the misery of the lives of people who live in Kateme at their own request. Uh, at the same time, I'm kind of very much aware that this idea of non-politics goes against the, uh, let's say, a more conventional feminist urge to label any strategy in the face of dehumanization as political. Uh, so I kind of go against that. I say that. Uh, Whilst precarity itself within the resettlement site is constituted by political processes of enclosure and dispossession, I mean there's no doubt about that. I mean nobody would contest that, that those processes are political. I say that due to violence associated with these processes, uh, the coping with precarity, for example, leaving the resettlement site, going to live in more remote areas in the province, these practices of abandonment, disengagement trying to find a space to socially reproduce yourself in a very precarious context, I would argue that, I mean, it doesn't translate into transformative politics that would challenge the condition of precarity, that precarity is still there. So, for example, if you abandon the resettlement side and you go and live in these remote areas, I discuss in the book how it, whilst you might be able to immediately reproduce yourself as as a being, right, at the same time, you d- experience different forms of precarity. You live far away, like some families had taken their kids with them so the children cannot go to schools. They live two, three-hour drive from health facilities. So they ex- experience even other kind of, even more heightened forms of precarity. So what does this act of kind of what we might see as everyday form of resistance, does it change once material conditions of life? In the book, I make the argument that it doesn't because... It doesn't liberate oneself from this position. It's just like kind of re-articulates this, this kind of precarity in a different material context that was created by this possession in the, in the first place. Um, so this is kind of uh, so yeah, That I say that the practices of abandonment, they like this kind of non-politics of abandonment enables life to be lived on precarious, on precarious terms, but it does not openly contest uh, and it only unwillingly reinforces this kind of spatial order that was made and created by this possession. So it's just like kind of a different form of precarity. <laughs> so I mean, this is how I saw it. Like this is kind of I kind of saw in the in the in the space where I was working, and this is what people were you know people were telling me. But then the kind of the more I think about it, as <laughs> I, I kind of my hunch now with like engaging with different literatures that uh, there's uh, perhaps a a different way which I do not know yet to kind of think with this tension and think about this tension without you know levitating between either or because I think I d- do slightly overemphasize that in the book that you know if something that. <laughs> So, I mean, I want to say that. I want to say, like, yes, we cannot say that only acts that lead to open contestation are productive. But at the same time, I'm just thinking about the immediate material context of my research participants and how they live, having abandonment the resettlement site and still continuing to struggle. Then I kind of immediately think, like, well, but this is, you know, this is this this is what they emphasize and would I, would, you know, I wouldn't like to... I remember one time in Mozambique, uh, in in Maputo, in the capital, I was in a seminar, and the seminar was on decolonial theory. And one researcher said, like, this, like, articulated this question that still stayed with me. He's like, well, it's all fine that we've defined these practices as resistances and et cetera, but the question that you should ask, would you like to live like that? Is it a life that you know one would like to have? Or is it like something that, how can you say it's resistance if it's kind of uh, described, like characterized by extreme forms of uh, suffering? Uh, because when it comes to, I think, and I think the point that he was making was that like politically as an activist researchers, we have to make a stance, we have to choose a stance and say what is acceptable or not. And we have to actively speak against these forms of social, spatial injustice and highlight suffering and vulnerability rather than focusing on resistance. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's something that I haven't solved in the book and I I think people do it in different ways. And I'm still thinking about that question just in a in a very different context now, but the question is still there. Even though, I mean, I'm, I, I don't think I'm asking it directly, but it's... Uh, Something that, yeah.
1: Um, I actually also, I enjoyed that you didn't resolve it in the book. And I think one of the things that also stood out for me in the book was that you seem to really struggle with not being able to find something that was very, like, that was a very clear sign of resistance or, cope, you know, or hopefulness. So and and i enjoyed that particularly because your struggles kind of emphasized and your non resolution of the of this dialectic emphasized the you know like the very real material conditions of the people that you were investigating so so i you know it was good not to have that kind of closure and it was also good to see you struggle you know like i mean almost perversely but like it was it was good to see that That you really try to be hopeful but then it didn't really emerge Um, because that is very often what ends up happening uh, more and more so now than before i would even argue so
0: yeah i I think i would very much agree with that i think there's kind of this tendency of affirmationism that we you know we discuss like some papers discuss like go into great length of discussing all these struggles that people might have. And then they talk about, you know, world making that, you know, there's something that can still emerge from there. And then my question is like, well, how exactly, you know, like, what is there to affirm, you know? And uh, I know, like, is this like a pol- politically useful? I mean, that that's, I mean, that's what it kind of like this kind of idea. I mean, this kind of idea of of world making, I think, it's kind of also a strategy of soothing ourselves that you know something can can exist and be there that like that kind of lead to some change and of course I mean there are important changes when we think about different social struggles and uh, significant victories that have been achieved over the last decades. I mean it's of course it's there and
1: uh, yeah. I, I don't know I think... what I was trying to say with this. <laughs> No, I think uh, again, I, I, you know, and I should say that uh, at least in my work, and, you know, I also tend towards like going towards that hopefulness, you know, but I do it almost as a strategy of what can be possible in the future. Like, I precisely because I see writing as not simply what one represents about reality, but also what one makes or like builds about the future. So it almost feels like a responsibility to go towards that kind of hopefulness, even if one doesn't see it in today's times, right? Like, it's almost like you're willing it into existence. Um, But you're, you're right in the sense that it doesn't really allow us to, it doesn't do much to explain how exactly, right? Like, but I don't know if that's necessarily always the purpose of like, you know, futurism in that sense. But uh, I I think, like, I particularly enjoyed in your book that that question was open and it was also, like, a struggle. It was not, like, you know...
0: Yeah, um, well, well, I mean, of course, everybody will attest to this, that, you know, writing is a struggle because we write into the world that we do not know yet, you know. So, and maybe there's a, you know, yeah... And I think that kind of staying honest with this kind of struggle and keeping it. Uh, as, I, as I kind of we having this conversation, like I'm kind of immediately questioning myself to what extent am I doing good enough job for my, you know, like publicity, for my own work and thinking in the book, because, you know, there's and but at the same time, I mean, I'm just kind of staying honest to my intellectual development as a scholar. Precisely because of, uh, you know, who I am as a queer man of migrant background, knowing that, you know, this kind of grand narrative and explaining the world is a form of privilege that to start this specific group of white men have held dear. And I'm kind of, I don't want to be that. And I'm trying not to be that. And, and I think kind of undermining one's arguments and showing tensions and struggles is a way to do it. Um, I
1: think so. And I think that's, you know, for me, that's great publicity because it's like, <laughs> because it's honest, right? You're not getting one like closed narrative from you, which is very exciting. And I think um, I also like, you know, I think of books or scholarship in general as like, you know, it's at most like a provisional closure because you have to hand something in. But it's not actually like, it would be a disservice to say that, like, you know, you yourself have not moved in Mm. the two years since the book came out, you know.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I think yeah, like, another thing that I want to acknowledge, and I think we have to talk about, that increasingly we have less and less time to do this. I mean, in an ideal world, I would have had maybe three more years to work on this book. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because it did come out of a PhD project, I was already working on a different project and I wanted to finish this book well because in the current academic market you need to have a book to get a so-called permanent position right so I needed to finish it but maybe you know 20-30 years ago and at least in the English-speaking academia people had more time and space and conditions to you know to have 10-5 years to think about these arguments and really ground them and And, you know, changing thinking, intellectual development of oneself as a scholar. And this is what I'm seeing now that two years later, having engaged with much more diverse theoretical work, I'm starting to see my argument in in a different way. And so it's also a question of time and uh, what current precarization of academia allows or disallow. Uh, So... So I think something that like I'm kind of highlighted now is kind of tension, slight discomfort with what I'm saying. It's also kind of a result of precarization of academia and what we're experiencing as young academics that we do not necessarily have the time that we would like to have for thinking these projects, because I mean, when I, I know when I think about some of really great books, like, I don't know, Povinelli's work on economies of abandonment, for instance, I mean, if I remember correctly, that was like 10 years of research, 15, and I mean, and th- th- sometimes that's the time that it takes to, to write. And I'm, of course, I'm not saying that, you know, if I had five more years, I would be next, but then I wish, and that's not my argument. But I'm kind of just highlighting that, you know, this kind of also material context within which we have to mediate these tensions of how we think about what we think and what we can think. Given the the limitations that we have as scholars, as as individuals, as social beings,
1: yeah, and I think just to add another layer to that, also, it's like I think precarity also um, it forecloses your thought, like it it limits the universe within which you can think. So mm-hmm. I think that also makes you know, and and this is going back to what you said earlier today, which is that to have to have an idea of the world is also like a kind of privileged position. So it kind of is that, right? Like within an academic system that also makes us precarious, that idea of the world is foreclosed given that there are so many immediate considerations of like employment or, you know, sometimes even survival. So Mm -hmm. very much so. Yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think this idea of the world, just to expand on it, it's very much intertwined with the ideal of subjecthood and subjectivity and like who traditionally has been the subject of this world. And uh, and I mean, and I think that I've been thinking about that lately, uh, what it means to do fieldwork, this kind of idea that we have, you know, That you need to have this kind of bravado and agency and courage to go into places and ask people questions, put yourself in uncomfortable situations, maybe, maybe keep pushing in spite of the tensions that emerge. This is a very masculinist idea. And like, this is a form of entitlement that, you know, who think we 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 can have to produce this kind of knowledge and i think in academia we still see it as a kind of a rite of passage right that one needs to endure these processes to produce knowledge about the world right but but then i mean if you are a subject who is doesn't it kind of doesn't neatly fit into that category i don't know if you are if you're a transgender person, if you are if you're a mother with two young children and cannot go on long st- you know research stays, if you I know if you suffer with uh, he- mental health issues, I mean you cannot necessarily endure these challenges, depending on the type of research that you do. Uh so yeah, I think this relationship between the subject researching and the world and what feels comfortable or discomforting is, is also like, I'm sure other people have written about it and I should research more and maybe think about it more like systematically and methodologically. But having spent the last two months in Kenya doing research, I couldn't help but think about it that myself when I was, say, seven years ago doing fieldwork and now... I would think that I would be much more confident in doing these things, but actually I'm much more unsettled by everything that, you know, research encounter might represent, you know, but I think ultimately that's a good thing because I would like to hope that that leads to more honest forms of scholarship.
1: I I would like to think so. Yeah. Yeah um but you know this also leads me to my next question which is that you know what are then the provocations you want to leave your readers with and what are some of the projects that you're working on now or excited to think about in the future
0: Mm -hmm. well i think provocations i provided quite a few and i i think this tension that i kind of started exploring in the book how do we make sense of this kind of an inevitable juxtaposition between resist well between contesting violence as a form of uh well contesting violence but at the same time accepting the violence system as the only pathway to a livable life i think that was kind of the main tension that i grappled with in the book but that ne- didn't necessarily resolve and i would like to see what i mean what people make of it and uh what I'm currently working on is, I mean, for the last couple of, well, three or four years, I've been working on uh, uh, mega infrastructures, on large-scale infrastructures in Kenya, and how they function as uh, kind of biopolitical and necropolitical modalities of governance, how they allow or kind of... Undo spaces of livability for vulnerable groups of people. So very much similar di- kind of dynamics that I explored in my book, but through different kind of focus on materiality. But at the same time, giving more kind of attention to tension and this kind of unclear kind of link between oneself and the world. And I've been reading, as I think, as I mentioned, more and more queer theory, uh, And now I'm kind of going more into uh, black critical tradition, Afro-pessimism, to kind of, uh, yeah, think about these bodies of work that emerged in different contexts. To what extent the concepts that emerge from there can travel across time and space. So for instance, like something that I've been thinking about and i been writing, like have this paper that I'm working on. To what extent can queer theory and what kind of queer theory teaches us about the world, how can we employ it it in other contexts without talking about normativity or identity or sexuality? Can it help us understand the kind of the radical unknowability of the world in kind of different empirical contexts? I don't know, maybe this project cannot be done and maybe I'm kind of, struggling with something that uh, maybe shouldn't be done. Maybe it, it needs to be, maybe it's like travels too, too far from like that kind of the original political project of queer theory, but like something that I enjoy thinking about. Uh, so I'll, I'll see where it takes me. And, uh, uh, and also another th- kind of project that I hopefully will be able to do. I want to engage more with the, uh, uh, queer politics of uh, of resistance and kind of living in the in the world that we we live in, uh, and for me it's kind of a way to think. Uh, I, well, I don't know to what I, I, if it's like a like appropriate to talk about it in the in the end of the discussion. Well, I think uh, to me, like I had this problem negotiating my to what extent am I allowed to be in these spaces as a as a white man from Europe, when there are like not many points of connection between me and populations groups that I'm working with. Uh, to what extent can I understand the experience when like I live in a very different world? And I ca- kind of, I'm in- intuitively f- feeling that, for instance, if I worked on queer politics in urban spaces and, in in contexts where I work, maybe my queerness and queerness of my subject groups research groups would kind of maybe would facilitate that point of connection but maybe that's just a complete illusion that that connection can be facilitated because I'm i'm aware that this kind of this like this global politics of uh queerness and and identity and that i very much still benefit from kind of this global political economy of queerness and to what extent would I be allowed into these spaces or do I have a right to be in these spaces that's kind of uh, another question that uh yeah kind of have to think about and I think well uh, Shred, this is something that you probably can comment on given your work I'm
1: so, sorry I'm so sorry hold on so Thank you very much for this insightful conversation, Dr. Lasutis. And, you know, for our listeners, I'd now like to quote some lines from the book to end our interview. Um, Dr. Lasutis writes, foregrounding what life is lived within the logic of capitalist obliteration and its schizophrenic landscapes. In this book, I demonstrate how precarity as a conceptual framework provides a befitting analytic for the impossibilities of a livable life as well as the intersections of hopes and anxieties, dreaming and suffering, flourishing and effacement of contemporary social life, often in or on the verge of loss and dispossession, constituted through the violence of spatial capitalist abstractions. To me, writing about such experiences as precarity functions as praxis, as a critique of the dreams and hopes of development promised by today's world order, It shows how suffering is mediated by the spatial orderings that unfold through the ongoing expansion and intensification of extractive capital accumulation in Mozambique and beyond. The Politics of Precarity is now available in bookstores and online.